Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Our big idea this morning is this. A life of faith combats death and division and all the world's brokenness. We're going to see this in three different phases. See, what happens is that Egypt and Israel kind of gather together and they weep over Jacob's death in verses 1 through 14 of our chapter 50 here this morning. And then uh, what Jesse just read to us from 15 through 21, Joseph weeps over the division that he has with his brothers. And then finally, in verses 22 through 26, Joseph makes plans for his own death and burial and how his bones will be brought back to uh, the, the promised land as it were. I want to dive right in. We have a a lot of text here this morning, and I want to kind of just get right to it. Uh, But a life of faith combats this death and division and all of the world's brokenness. We're starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, uh, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians uh, wept for him 70 days. See, in these first verses, we see that Egypt and Israel respond to Jacob's death. And the last time we saw uh, Jacob and the sons of Joseph in Genesis 49, in verse 33, Jacob pulls his feet up into his bed and he breathes his last. And we fall right on the heels of that this morning in Genesis 50, chapter 1. Chapter 50, verse 1, where Joseph just falls on his father's dead body and weeps over him. And so Genesis 50 begins with Joseph's reaction. And so it's weeping in verse 1, and then it's the process of embalming in verse 2. Now this is kind of a weird thing. Uh, Not everybody got embalmed in the nation of Egypt. It was kind of for these privileged people. Because you know what the sign of privilege is, is when they pull out your brains and your internal organs after you die. And then they wrap you in linen strips, and that's what what it is, right? So the whole process, I guess, took some 40 to 70 days. And so uh, that's what's being described here, and all of Egypt is mourning for Jacob the shepherd. And so in verses 4 through 6, then, we read this, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, that I, um, I am about to die in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return." And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So what Joseph does is he speaks to a representative of Pharaoh's house. For whatever reason, he doesn't have access to Pharaoh. We don't really know why. But notice Joseph's request in verse 5. My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. And so what Joseph does, he first kind of hides the fact that that Jacob did not want to be buried in the land of Egypt. If you go back to chapter 47, when when Jacob's kind of giving his last testament to, to Joseph, he specifically asks that he not be buried in Egypt. 
Well, you can't go to the Pharaoh of the land and say, my father hated this place. I mean, he hated this place, right? And so he wants to get his dead carcass back up to the promised land, you know? No, he has to kind of soften it a little bit. And he says he dug out for himself this hand-hewn tomb, and he wants to be buried there. And the second thing we see is that Joseph promises that someday he's going to return. He's going to come back. After he buries his father, he's going to return. We can only assume that the famine that was described earlier in Genesis is over, um, but Joseph is promising his return. We remember that Joseph is a servant. He has to ask permission to leave and bury his father, and he has to explain the process of his return to his boss, as it were. Finally, Pharaoh kind of gives his permission in verse 6. Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. Now that word up is interesting because it's going to be used some six times throughout our passage this morning. And really it stands in contrast to the down that we've seen so much throughout the book of Genesis previously. And when we were in... um, The story of Joseph later on when Joseph was brought down to Egypt and um, Judah came down to Egypt and the brothers came down. This is kind of the the process of their return. They were coming back up. Uh, Really, there's a geographical kind of thing that's going on there where uh, Jerusalem, the promised land, is elevation. It's higher. So when they're talking about going up and going down, they're not talking northeast, southwest, right? They're talking about elevation and, and rise in the land. And so that's what they're describing, And so what happens in verses 7 through 14 is that Joseph and and all kinds of Egyptians and Joseph's brothers, they take this entourage with them and they go and bury Jacob at Machpelah in verses 7 through 14. Look at verse 7 with me. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. All, only their children, their lo- flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on this threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan." Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah. It's the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Right? There's a mouthful here. Let's talk about what exactly is going on. See, Jacob is essentially given a state funeral. Notice the guest list that's there. Uh, From Egypt, verse 7 describes that with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt. And we just have to stop and consider that the the lowly born shepherd son of just this migrant individual is now being honored by the king of the most powerful man or country in the world. Right? This individual, this Jacob, this person who is the son of a nomadic shepherd is mourned by the dignitaries of the most powerful nation in the world. And this is something that uniquely only our God could accomplish, isn't it? 
And from Jacob's family, there's all of Jacob's household, his brothers and his father's household. In fact, we're, we're told that the only ones who are left back in Goshen are the animals and the children, which would make for an exciting kind of time back in Goshen, right? Animals and kids just running around. But all of Jacob's family is coming up. So that's the guest list. Notice the formality. Uh, they come up and they have chariots and horsemen and this great company. And when they cross over, they, they enter into this procedure of mourning, uh, you know, later on in this passage. And when they cross the Jordan in the land of Canaan, it was an appropriate time for them to stop and to mourn. And so what it says is that Joseph and his family meant to enter into this mourning for a period of seven days. And from there, the sons of, of, Joseph, or, excuse me, of Jacob bury Jacob in the cave at Machpelah, just like he had asked. See, it's here. We kind of look and we say, what's going on in this passage? Why is this such an extended description? If you go back and look at the burials of Abraham and of Isaac in the book of Genesis, it's like two verses. And and there's no like big party showing up. It's just like a couple of sons showing up at their grave and burying their father. Why is this so big of a deal and such a great description? See, I think the text wants to highlight for us that there's something still broken happening. In fact, one of the words that's repeated through this early part of this chapter is the word weep. We have words that are used to describe just kind of the uh, emotional response to losing a loved one. If we go back to the beginning of Genesis, and we just see that Genesis gives us a, a picture, describes for us a good world gone bad. Remember back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we're given this picture of paradise, right? There's these lush green gardens which were easily cultivated. There's consistent access to God's presence. There's animals frolicking around. There's deep relationship with a, a spouse that's available there. But Genesis 3 initiates a world that sounds more familiar to us, doesn't it? It's a world filled with shame and fear and guilt. Adam and Eve are ashamed, and so they hide their nakedness. They're afraid of God, so they hide themselves from God. They have guilt, so they start blaming each other for everything. And then it's not just that. It's that God starts laying on these curses for them and their sin so that the woman has pain in her childbearing, so that uh, Adam has, uh, has toil in his work, and that all of them will face death at the end of their life. See, by the time we get to Genesis 50, we would have hoped to have found a solution to this problem. But what Genesis 50 is pointing to us is that death still exists. That the problems of a sin-cursed, broken world are still ever-present. Death is a fact for all of the nations involved. So that they unite, the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Israelites, unite around this funeral for Jacob. And all of this is met with weeping in verses 1 and 3 and 4 and lamentation in verse 10 and mourning in verse 11. Not to mention that after Joseph buries his father, he has to go back to work for a boss. See, it's a broken world indeed, isn't it? I wish I could tell you this morning that somehow all of this is better. That it's kind of gone away. That time has healed all wounds. But if ever there was a week that reminded us of the brokenness of our world, it was this week. See, we turned on the news and we saw things like this. We saw Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old boy, shot in Chicago. And on the other end of the spectrum, we saw Prince Philip die after his 99th year living. Toledo 
his life ended too early. Age 13, he was shot in Chicago when he was caught carrying a weapon, running from the police. Conversely, Prince Philip's life uh, went well beyond expectation. He lived 99 years. And we might not think that Adam Toledo had much to do or much in common with Prince Philip. They came from seemingly opposite ends of the world in different parts of the world with massive age different and different economy and everything else. But can I just humbly suggest that both of these suffered? It's likely that Adam Toledo knew the violence of the Chicago streets. He likely was involved in, in a lot of that. But we also know that Prince Philip was involved in the Royal Navy in World War II. He saw combat. There's some commonality between these two individuals. Toledo came from what was most likely a split home. Mom and dad were separated. Well, Prince Philip watched his son and Princess Diana go through a very public divorce. Both suffered. Both died. It reminds us that all of us face a broken world. No matter what tax bracket we find ourselves in this morning, we all face a very broken world, don't we? And all we need to do is turn on the evening news to be reminded of just how broken the world in which we live is. But thank God that there's more here this morning. See, Joseph has yet to experience another consequence of the fall and also the redemptive purpose of God. See, if death is the opposite or obvious consequence of sin, we might miss out something a, a bit more under the radar, this, this relational division that Joseph is going to experience and the redemption that God provides. Look at the ver- verses that we've read in verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay, pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, what happens is that Joseph's brothers become concerned, right? In verse 15, there's this description. The realization finally hits them. Oh no. What if Joseph remembers all of the horrible things we did to him? It's like that moment when you had a week-long sub and then the main teacher comes back and you have to like pay the piper for all the horrible things you did to the sub. His brothers have this realization and it sets in. And so Joseph's brothers take action. It would seem that what they do is they kind of make up this fake message from their father. Hey, Joseph, remember when our father said that you should treat us kindly and nicely, right? It's a very convenient time to remember that. But what happens is in verse 17, they follow up. In verse 17, it says, And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And altogether in these verses, Gordon Wenham points out that three of the four words that are used for sin throughout the book of Genesis are used here by these brothers. 
there's a rich confession that is being brought to Joseph from these brothers of his. And finally, what they do is they come down and they bow before Joseph yet again and offer themselves as his servants. So the brothers show genuine contrition. They offer a genuine confession. And so then Joseph has a decision to make. Will he extend forgiveness and mercy to these people who are recognizing their own sinfulness? By the way, this is the New Testament pattern, right? When we genuinely confess, God meets us with genuine forgiveness. And when we confess to one another, we should be met with, conf- uh, with genuine forgiveness. That we should forgive, as Paul says, as God has forgiven us in Christ. And so there's a modeling of this in the life of Joseph. And so in verses 18 through 21, Joseph forgives his brothers on the basis of God's faithfulness. Look at Joseph's words. First, Joseph reassures his brothers in verses 19 and 20. Do not fear. Do not fear. Joseph tells his brothers not to be afraid. Why? Because the second thing he tells them is true. Joseph reminds them that he isn't God. Verse 20. Am I in the place of God? Joseph highlights this fundamental difference. He is not the Lord. We have to stop and admire the level-headedness of Joseph, don't we? All of this power and authority hasn't gone to his head. He doesn't, in his vindictiveness, hold his brother's sin against them. In the New Testament, Paul tells us uh, that we shouldn't Uh, repay evil with evil, that vengeance is the Lord's, that we shouldn't uh, kind of spit back at people what they spit at us. Joseph is is doing that exact thing here. He goes on in verse 20, he highlights the third thing. Joseph highlights the purpose of God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. See, Joseph's not simply content to highlight that it's not his job to bring justice, that he's not the Lord. He bring, goes beyond to see the goodness of God's divine plan. His affliction led to the well-being of many. And thus Joseph is content to not uh, bring condemnation or retribution, but rather to extend forgiveness to his brothers. And so finally, Joseph commits to treating them as if they were innocent. That's what he says in verse 21, doesn't he? He says, um, I'm going to continue to care for you and for your little ones. I will provide for you and for your little ones. See, Joseph is recognizing that God is working in these brothers who have sinned against him. And he's recognizing that he then can't bring condemnation in the thing that God is using. See, God is working amidst this broken world even now, isn't he? Joseph looks beyond the difficulty and sees God's provision for him. If we stop and we say, J- Joseph extends forgiveness because he sees God's greater purpose in their sin. It's just a recognition this morning that in order for us to be truly forgiving, we must see beyond our circumstance to see a sovereign God who's in our midst and working. We as evangelicals, we've struggled for years, haven't we? We've struggled to have a positive understanding of our world. It's one of the critiques that's leveled against us by so many different camps is that we struggle to kind of have a positive framework about what God is doing in the world. We struggled to see God's work amidst our present circumstances. 
We wring our hands about every election. We complain about the inner workings of, of Hollywood and of entertainment. We fret about the moral and philosophical tones of our schools and, and our society. But we know that God is continuing to work in this world because he's promised us better things. Think about this for a second. God has told us of a world where lions and lambs lay down together. He's told us of a world where nations will come and gather around the person of Jesus Christ. He's told us about a world where where swords are bent into plowshares, where we no longer go to war with one another. We rather use those tools to, to provide for ourselves and to reap abundantly in God's new society. Because God's word is always accomplished, because what he speaks always comes to pass, we know that such a day is coming. No matter what Hollywood produces, no matter what's happening on the political scene, no matter what your neighbor is doing or anything else, we have confidence that God is bringing about this world that he's described. See, too many of us have embraced an attitude of defeat. We read the headlines, we wring our hands, we see the trajectory of moral decline, we see the confusion that rules the day, but God's promise is more real than what our eyes see. See, we know beyond a shadow of doubt that when God speaks, he acts, and when he promises, he fulfills. Isn't that true? So what we see is that there's a broken world, that God's in the midst, working in the midst of that broken world. What we see in this final section is that Joseph is starting to make plans for his own death, interacting with this broken world in which he lives and making plans according to the promise of God. Look at verses 22 through 26 of Genesis 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, The children also of Mechir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. See, Moses concludes this book of Genesis by bringing the story of Joseph to completion. Joseph has lived 110 years. He's lived to see his great-grandchildren. And notably, he adopts his, his son's children as his own, just like Jacob did for his kids. Joseph then gives a prophecy in verse 24. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land in the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by the way, when you come up out of the land, don't forget my dead bones. Bring them up with you and plant them for me in the land of Canaan. See, Joseph went down to Egypt as a 17-year-old. He lived to be 110 years old. That means that Joseph spent about 15% of his life in the place that he chose to be buried in. Why? Because of the promise of God. That place that represented so much heartache and hurt and pain for this individual, that's the place that he wanted to return to because God promised it to him and to his descendants. 
See, Genesis presents to us a means of dealing with this broken world. See, Genesis 3 presents us with a a new world marked by death and division and difficulty. But here, God's promise has redefined the world for Joseph and Jacob. Death uh, made people temporary and made the cosmos almost seemingly eternal, right? God created us to be eternal, but when we sinned against him, he created death. And so it flipped everything on its head so that you and I felt temporary and like this world would last forever. But what God's promise is doing in the life of Joseph is is making the world temporary and the lives of his faithful servants an eternal reality. See, in this way, God gives his people an antidote to sin's poison. Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, all those who were true to God's covenant can get through this broken world by holding these promises close to the chest. See, whether death or disappointment, all of the world's difficulties seem to splatter off God's chosen people as if they were impenetrably coated by the promise of God. So we recognize this morning that God has a plan for restoration of this broken world, doesn't he? God has a a plan for the restoration of this world that experiences so much heartache and sin and difficulty. And namely, that plan has a name that is Jesus Christ. One of the things we might miss about this passage this morning is that what's happening is that a a chosen leader of God is leading Israelites back to the, the land that God had promised. And in fact, in the next book of the Bible, in in, Genesis, then Exodus, I do know those two books, they come in a row, right? In the next book of the Bible, God is going to describe another chosen leader that will lead God's people out of Israel to the promised land, right? And so when Moses' audience is reading this story in Genesis 50, their ears would have perked up. Wait a minute. A chosen leader of God is by strength leading the Israelites back to the promised land. So it would have been a pre-exodus, as it were. But the truth is this morning that even after the exodus of Moses happened, things were still broken, weren't they? See, we were waiting for a leader to truly lead us out of our brokenness, of, of our uh, dismissal in Egypt, as it were. We were waiting for God to send one who would uh, raise up, God would raise one up who would lead us out of our sinfulness, out of our brokenness, into what he had promised to us. Someday, God would send us a leader to take us to this promised land. And one day, there would be another servant of God who, by his death, would bring together nations. There would be another who would come from obscurity, and the purpose of God became the important, most important thing to the world. There would be another who, in seeing God's faithfulness, could hear his brother's confession and bring unity to his family. See, we see that Jesus Christ is the true leader who brings us out of our sinfulness and into his promise. Jesus' suffering is our confidence to face a broken world, isn't it? It's by Jesus' own suffering, his substitutionary death, that Jesus can promise to end our suffering. Because Jesus has made full and final payment for our sin, he can extend his blissful eternity to us. There's this passage in Revelation 21. 
If we're at the front end of the Bible right now in Genesis, we would be at the back end in Revelation chapter 21, the closing of the book of of Revelation, and God has finally brought all of his saints back to himself, and Jesus makes this statement. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, is making everything new. He is pictured in that book as one who brings final judgment. He's one who wipes away every tear, who puts an end to death and suffering. He dwells amongst his people so that he would bring a newness to everything, so that we would no longer experience a broken, shattered world because of sin. But now in God's redemption, through the risen Christ, we would experience the fullness of life that God had created for us. Amen? See, here's the thing. We can talk about this theoretically. We can talk about a Savior, Jesus, and how he theoretically makes all things new, how he someday will return and he'll establish his kingdom on the earth, and then he'll judge the earth, and he'll bring about his renewal, and and all of those things will happen in time. But what you and I need right now is a personal Savior who walks with us. Think about it as like a marathon, right? You, you go, nobody here has probably run a marathon, but just imagine how miserable that would be, right? You run a marathon, and at the end, what do they give you? A cup of water. This is what the, this view of Christianity would hold out for us. You would run the race, struggling, fighting, trying to breathe, only to get the cup of water at the end. But Christianity holds out something fundamentally different. See, right now, an ivory tower discussion on suffering will not suffice. A a discussion about how Jesus will make all things new seems so far removed from us. And what we need is a, a recognition that Jesus doesn't just have a plan for the future. He has a plan for right now. A couple Fridays ago, we sat with our community group, and it was the week that all the ladies were out of town, which I'm still a little bitter about, but all the guys are there, and we're talking about life, and to a man, every person went around, and they just shared their frustration with their workplaces, how difficult the market is. And we described that, would, you know, if I could change my job and, and, and find something different, I would. But if I go to another place, it's going to be just as hard and just as difficult. I have to tell you, I hear this story so often. Over the last two or three years, I see, hear so many people that have difficulties at work who have stress and constant friction in their work environments. And every guy, in turn, spoke about his difficulty at work. I'm personally, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of difficulty that so many of us face. Some of you face difficult work situ- situations that are just oppressive. Some of you face difficult home situations, whether it's with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents or whatever else it might be. Some of us face economic problems or career problems or home problems or physical problems or mental problems. There's so many things that are just piling up. And we we might say, is that it? Does Christianity only offer the future hope of relief? It's with that in mind this morning that I, I just want to turn to some words from Jesus in Matthew 11. Yes, the 30,000-foot view is true. Jesus will bring redemption and renewal. He'll make all things new. But right now, this is what Jesus promises to us. 
says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does Jesus give promise for a sin-cursed, broken world? How does he speak into that in these passages in Matthew chapter 11? And the first recognition is this, that everybody labors. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, give me that yoke. I'll take it away from you. You you just sit down and take a rest. What he says is, is, I'm gonna give you a better yoke. Everybody works. It's Bob Dylan, right? Everybody's gotta serve somebody. That's like the worst Bob Dylan song to quote, by the way. The next thing he promises is that Jesus promises rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And when we come to him, when we come to Jesus Christ, even though the world tells us that all Jesus does is bring condemnation and guilt, what Jesus promises us is when we come to him, he gives us rest. That is, Jesus Christ offers rest right here, right now. It's not the cup of water at the end of the marathon. It's the nebulizer in the midst of the race. When we are tired and weary, Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, gives fresh air to the souls of his people. This mystical theology that Jesus describes where he gives us rest. He meets us in our weariness. And so he beckons us. This is the third thing. He beckons you and I to come to him. Oh, and if you could bring the verse back up for us this morning. Come to me. I will give you rest. See, that's right. We are to come to him. He's inviting you even now. The God of the universe who holds out that he is making all things new invites us sinners in in our flesh to come to him. He is gentle. Ever think about Jesus that way? It's hard for me to describe gentleness. When my kids were little, you know, they would do everything with gusto, right? I used to joke with Owen that he led with his face and everything. It was like, you know, just charging right at everything, you know. But gentleness is this concept of power under control. Jesus Christ is one who has great, massive power, but he deals with you and I not to overwhelm us, not to break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. When he comes to us, or when we come to him, rather, he meets us with gentleness. He's lowly in heart. It's one of those phrases that sounds very spiritual and religious, and we say, I don't know what that means. It means he's humble. Think about this for a second. The God who was there when the heavens and earth were created embraces humility. He doesn't overblow himself or or think of himself as more than he is. He's lowly in heart. Jesus describes himself as humble. This means that he's not going to shame you. He's not going to just lay guilt upon guilt on top of you. Rather, he'll remind you of the provision that he's made in the cross. (laughs) 
He's that gentle surgeon who only cuts away what's needed to be cut away. Just imagine a home surgery kit, right? It comes in the mail. Your kids go running. Ah, Because you're an untrained surgeon who cuts more than what he needs to cut. Jesus only cuts away what needs to be cut, cut away. And he meets us with gentleness and lowliness. See, fundamentally, this Savior, Jesus, is powerful to work and loving to be present. Have you thought about that? Jesus is that perfect combination. He's capable of doing the things that you ask him to do and loving to want to do them. We can trust him amidst our largest heartaches and our smallest concerns. His long-term aim to make all things new is in coordination with his short-term grace and mercy with which he wants to meet you. See here, Jesus is still very much present amidst our struggle. So here's my encouragement. This is our application for this morning. Christian, don't do it alone. Don't struggle at life in this broken world alone. Bring your aches and pains, your hurts and difficulties to Christ through the process of prayer, through hearing through the word of God from Jesus Christ himself, from the Spirit's inspired words. Ask him for rest amidst your weariness. Be forthright and honest about your difficulties and let Jesus meet you in the depth of your need. I promise you that he'll show up. I promise you that if you come in humility, you come in confession and repentance, that if you come to Christ, He will show up and He will meet you with true rest and true grace. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we we do pray. Pray for these gathered here together and for myself, Lord, that we would bring these needs before you. We we struggle amidst the load of a a cursed, broken world. Lord, you have placed that weight upon this world. You, Lord, have uh, subjected this world to futility that we might feel the weight of our own sinfulness and that we might turn to you for grace. And so, Lord, that's exactly what we do. We turn to you to find grace, to find mercy in our time of need. Lord, meet our needs. We feel bone-weary, some of us. Remind us of the grace and kindness that you've provided for us in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.